We're going to read from the Bible now, and uh, if you take the Bibles in front of you, you can follow. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 11. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have, and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may. I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, Yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. 
and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is God's word. Our Father, how good you are to us. What a, what a wonder it is to know that you are a loving Father, a kind Father, a patient Father, a perfect Father who issues words of rebuke when we need them. And as we come to a passage where we see the balance of those things, your kindness uh, and yet your uh, challenge and rebuke in part here, would we hear you rightly? Would we hear these words as words of grace from a father who longs for his children to be full of joy and joyful obedience. Father, would we hear you rightly this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I don't know, uh, central London dwellers, I don't know if you've uh, been much to uh, factories and seen uh, production lines and them all whirring and the, and the sparks flying or whatever it may be. I have to admit, I haven't been to many. My, uh, I have a good friend or a friend who runs electronics factories, electronic engineer, and uh, his company... Uh, quite a big company, actually. They, they provide all the processors that go into iPhones. That's their key client. Uh, that's quite a big client. Uh, as you'd imagine, that's quite a decent contract uh, you've got. And so their production line, it wears away, and uh, they're all in sort of um, gloves and everything. You don't want to muck up the electronics there. But their testing procedure towards the end is quite rigorous because you want these things to work. If you've got too many Duff iPhones, all the customers get upset, Apple get very upset, you lose a contract worth a gazillion pounds or something enormous. So you need to test these things to make sure they work, and so they do, they're very thorough about that. Of course, you have a quality control department to test such things. I mean, any factory will have the same. A number of years ago, I went to the slightly different Ben and Jerry's factory in Vermont in the States, which is a hoot of a place, it's sort of set up as... Uh, like Willy Wonka's factory, no Oompa Loompas, but um, that sort of thing. It's all very colourful and, and uh, garish. And uh, you know, a production line, and every I think it was every 500, but maybe 1,000, every 500th tub that comes off the line, there's someone gets a massive cleave or wallops it in half, uh, opens it up. How is the stuff distributed? Because you don't want all your cookie dough in one big dollop. You want it spread throughout. And someone, they test it, how's the stuff distributed, and then someone has to taste it. What a job. And that was left to someone who, no, they weren't all Oompa doing that. But the, uh, uh, that's the sort of job that's wonderful for a couple of days maybe and then ooh, uh, probably get a bit much. But again, quality control. Every factor, every department needs it in one sense. Now, Paul is writing this letter, and this, certainly this section, it becomes acute. When it comes to the churches that he planted, he's not just interested in numbers. How many get churned off the line, as it were? He's intensely concerned with the quality of their discipleship. 
He's not just interested in followers. He wants disciples of Jesus Christ for their good. He doesn't want them to, he doesn't want them to waste their lives. And also for God's honour. My friend in his factory, there are too many duff iPhone chips and that's it. They're, they're shut down. The honour of the company is ruined. Paul, he gets here in this letter, too many Christians living immorally, well, the honour of the Lord. Well, that gets jeopardised, that's at stake. So he's not just interested in attendees, but servants. Paul is concerned with the quality of the discipleship that's taking place in Corinth. And so, as we'll get there, he'll say, you need to test yourself. There needs to be some element of quality control. Uh, going on. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. We spent a long time in this letter of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we hit the sort of theological peak of the letter in, in chapter 12, verse 10. When I am weak, I am strong. That is, humble dependence upon the Lord is how Paul lived his life, in contrast to where there are false leaders, bogus leaders, bogus teachers uh, in Corinth who are challenging him. But this week, we get to the presenting issue in really, I guess, chapter 12 and verses 20 and 21. There's a sense the whole of the letter has been concerned with this, but here he names it explicitly. Chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. He's about to visit them again. And he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. I'm afraid. I fear there'll be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. I'll be humiliated. You won't be the disciples I want you to be. I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual sin and debauchery in which they've indulged. So here's the issue, Paul says, I'm coming back again. Look, about AD 50, Paul planted this church. He was in Corinth for about 18 months, then went away. A couple of years, he comes back, and there's a bit of a fight when Paul comes to visit this church. We read about it all the way back in chapter 2 of this letter. There were some involved. Their sexual behavior was immoral. Paul challenged that, and the church was divided, and he left. He was rejected by many in the church, and he's saying, look, I'm coming back again, and I'm praying that you've got these things resolved in your lives. I'm desperate that when I arrive, all is well. Please? Because if not, it's going to be pretty painful when I come for you and for me. So as I finish my letter, says Paul, two things we need to get clear. One is my authority, and the second, my ambitions for you. So Paul's authority, I say, you've seen that. It's been proven in action. And then secondly, we get that his ambition. His ambition was for their building up and their joy. Okay, two things. Uh, there's an outline on the back of the sheet. It's a little bit daunting, but hope I've done that just so we can try and push through uh, the details a little faster so we don't get lost. The main points then, really his authority and his ambitions for them. First then, let's look at his authority. Verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 11 to 19. Paul's authority, I've proven that to you. It's been proven in action. Three little things. First, he had the mark of an apostle. Verse 11, I've made a fool of myself. You've drove me to it. I ought to have been commended to you. I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostle. So clearly the accusation is, Paul, you were pretty rubbish compared to these new Christian leaders in town. You were feeble. 
That's the accusation. In theory, he says no. Two things worth noting, of course. Uh, Verse 12, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you. And secondly, they were done among you with great perseverance. And I don't want to, you know, we could get stuck here all day. Brief tangent. This phrase then, verse 12, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. Three quick, this is a tangent, this is a sidebar, three quick things. I'll even go over here so you don't get lost. Uh, one, it seems to me in my reading of the Bible that the Bible expects that miraculous things will happen today. Every time someone becomes a Christian, that's a wonderful miracle. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 would suggest that there are healings that will take place today that people can't explain. Okay? That's the first. Some things will take place today that are just miraculous. Two, this particular phrase, signs and wonders, is acute to specific periods in the Bible. So if here's the Bible, there are miracles that take place throughout the Bible. But signs and wonders, that phrase is used for the Exodus, Moses taking the, 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 um, uh, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. It's used for Jesus' ministry and that of the apostles. Signs and wonders. That phrase is specific to those two events because they are dramatically new, significant events. Okay? So they've been miraculous throughout the Bible, but this signs, wonders, miracles is acute to specific periods. So I don't think we're to expect this, the volume uh, and the extravagance of miracles that you see in the book of Acts, for example. One, you will always get miracles today, so it seems to me in the Bible. Two, not in the same way that you saw them quite back then. That was unique to that period. Three, this same phrase of um, signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul's, other, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, he would say, charlatans, bogus teachers will do signs, wonders, and miracles. So you want to be slow before you judge anyone's ministry on that alone. Okay, just three, I mean, you can come and ask me more about that after, so I don't want to get hung up on, on that particular issue. But three things, two pegs just to have in the ground. The other thing you want to note alongside with that, he says, is I worked among you with great perseverance. Significant, dominant theme, you might say, in this letter of two Corinthians. When Paul is explaining his ministry as opposed to the false Christian leaders. He never racks up the number of miracles he performed. Hey, do you remember when I, you know, when my uh, hanky healed those people? And do you, do you remember, you know, when I did that miracle? And I, do you remember? No, none of that. He's very quick to talk about his sufferings, how much he's endured uh, for them, much faster to speak about that. How someone copes with adversity is a much better barometer of their spirituality than the extravagant stories they tell or things they perform. How someone copes in adversity is a much better mark of their godliness, of their spirituality, than the stories they can tell of the extraordinary things they've seen. Paul is very slow to speak of miracles performed, very quick to speak of scars that he bears in this letter. So he had the marks of an apostle. Uh, the second little thing here, he loved them, not their stuff. Verse 14, now I'm ready, I'm ready to visit you for a third time. I'll not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. 
I want you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents save up for their children. Now, clearly there was some grievance in Corinth that Paul hadn't taken money from them for their ministry. But he says, no, I don't want your money, I want you. Now, verse 14 doesn't work so well in an Asian culture, because I know particularly places such as China, it's expected that kids give money to their parents. But in the West, we understand this. We would be surprised if uh, our parents issued bills to us. I read the other day that um, uh, in the UK, to raise a child from birth through to uh, 21, through university, they reckon it costs £227,000. Now just think, if you've got one, two, three children, you issued a bill, you'd be loaded. Just think of that. If you issued those bills to your uh, 20-year-old or older children, all of a sudden, great. If your parents issued them to you, not so good. But um, parents don't operate like that. They invest, they give to their children because they love them. They want to see them flourish. Paul says, I didn't charge you for my labors. I just wanted to see you flourish. I love you. I want you. Oh, yes, the accusation seems to come, verse 16. Yes, Paul, you didn't take our money, but Titus took some money, didn't he? So you, you pretended you were sort of virtuous and noble, and then you sent Titus to collect the money, and he gave it to you. No, 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 Titus collected for other Christians elsewhere. Look, verse 15, you know how I lived. I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. I'll give everything. Very strong, isn't it, verse 15? I'll spend everything for you. I'll expend my life for you. What's this bit like a candle? A candle is lit and, and gives light. And in giving light, it dies. The candle gives light until it's just gone. And Paul says, that's my life. I live to spend what I have for your sake, to expend myself for you. It's very strong, isn't it? Would we ever say that of a group of people, a church family? I expend myself for others. But it seems safe to say that Paul knew his master very well. It's just like Jesus. who said, I'll expend myself for you. You know what I'm like. He loved them, not their possessions. Then, verse 19, he, he defended himself for their sake. Verse 19. You, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Well, actually, it has seemed like that if you've read through this letter, Paul. Uh, that's kind of what you've been doing, isn't it? No. No. We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Yes, I'm defending myself, but for your good, you are in trouble. And unless you listen to me, I can't help you. There's a sense in which Paul is like a doctor. Uh, he's a GP, and uh, one day into the GP surgery in comes a man. And uh, this man has a strange growth on his uh, face. He's got a sort of second head coming out of his head or whatever it may be. But uh, a strange growth on his head. And uh, he doesn't want to go to the doctors, but his, his family badge him, eventually goes to the doctors. Uh, and the doctor says to him, yes, there is a problem. That appears to be some sort of cancerous 
growth. It's a melanoma, I would imagine. Off you go. You need to go and have a biopsy. And the man says, well, who are you anyway? My mate Nigel says, when you get older, these things happen. So doctor, I don't know who you are, but I've known Nigel for years. And Nigel says, don't worry about it. At that point, the GP will probably be a little frustrated. Probably not the first time that day someone has resisted the, uh, the, uh, the advice of the GP. But I take it the GP at that point is not just interested in self-justification. I'll have you know that I studied years to be a GP. And I have. Presumably the GP says, well, listen, you don't have to listen to me. But it is for your good that you listen to me. Look at my certificates. I am trained. Nigel is not. I have healed many patients. There are thousands in this uh, neighborhood who would say, hey, good GP, will you listen to me, please, for your good? For me, it's neither here nor there if my reputation, but for your good. That's what Paul is doing here. Please, will you listen to me? Will you respect my authority for your good? Now, you know, um, GPs tell me that uh, uh, today one of the banes of their life is Dr. Google, because uh, too many people can't be bothered to go to the GPs and they go to Dr. Google. Or arrive, even worse, they do visit the GP, having visited Dr. Google first. Dr. Google says, I have this wrong with me. Well, probably not, because the thing with Dr. Google is whatever you put in determines what you get out, obviously. And, you know, he, the, what you feed in and what you type in... It, and also, they're not there in front of you. They don't really know you. They can't diagnose your life. And yet, plenty of people today, in spiritual matters, will refer themselves to Pastor Google. Mm, yes, I read this letter, and it, I don't really like what Paul seems to be saying. Let me Google my question whatever it may be. Is it okay for Christians to visit prostitutes? Well, the Apostle Paul says no. But, oh, look, here's someone I found on the internet who says it's fine. So it's fine. Uh, is it okay just for Christians to sleep with other people, uh, even if they're not married, as long as they declare, I love you? Oh, yeah, look, plenty of people on the internet say it's fine. So it must be fine. No. No. Paul says, don't do that. You'll always find someone who can play you on side. But will you listen to me, who is a doctor and who knows you, who knows the human heart? Paul would say, verse 19, I speak in the sight of God. Will you listen to me? Will you listen and respond to these words, true words from God? Because if you fail to listen to Paul... Yeah, your discipleship's going to fail the quality test in some sense. You cannot be disciples of godly quality unless you listen to this Paul who has authority from the living God. You can't do it. So Paul says, please, please listen to my authority for your sake, for your good. Paul's authority has been proven in action. And then he says, well, let me tell you about my desires for you, my ambitions for you, why I bother uh, to go about these things. So uh, 19, chapter 12, verse 19 to the end of the letter. Paul's ambition 
was for their building up and their joy. Uh, still in verse 19, let's pick it up, verse 19. Uh, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. It's the same word, actually, in the Greek as chapter 13, verse 10. I'm writing this. I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Strengthening, building you up, same word, edification. That's what I'm concerned about here, says Paul. This whole section, uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 19, to chapter 13, verse 10, I want you to grow. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to be built up. I want you to be edified. That's what he's talking about. And so are you strong words. Uh, my son's cricket club, when you go downstairs, every, or as you go down the sort of stairwell, there's all these inspirational quotes uh, all on the walls from cricketers, uh, uh, former cricketers. Also. I mean, most of them are a bit Try it, to be honest. But um, uh, then there's one from Churchill, which you have to take a bit more seriously, don't you, because it's Winston. And uh, it's quite a well-known quote. But it's on the wall. It says, criticism, I won't do the voice, uh, or maybe I will. Uh, criticism may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to an unhealthy state of things. I don't know who he said that to. I wish I knew originally. Obviously, someone wasn't liking his words. He says, no criticism. It may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It says there's something wrong here, and it needs to be fixed. And that's true of your cricketing technique. Your front foot defensive may be criticized in order to improve. But Paul says, I'm criticizing you here because there's a problem. You may not like it, but it's necessary to fix you. Now, what are my desires? Well, one, I, uh, verse 20, 21, he longed for their repentance. Now, we read these verses already, but here is the heart of the problem. He fears a scenario like the last time he visited. Verse 20, I'm afraid when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. That is, I'm going to be pretty forceful with you. I fear there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. Oh, it was miserable. Do you remember last time I visited? Oh, it was miserable, wasn't it? Verse 21, here's the presenting issue. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me, humiliate me before you. I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier. I'll come and I'll be humiliated because I've been your apostle, but you've not listened to me. Ugh. But here's the issue. I'll be grieved over many who have sinned early and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. Many. You can read about these things in Paul's early letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, a man is committing incest. Uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Christians are visiting prostitutes. And the church is saying, well, as long as we all treat one another with grace, what does it matter? As long as we all say all is well and we forgive one another. The outside world is being scandalized. Everyone knows incest is not a good thing. Uh, the watching world looks on at you visiting prostitutes and says, really? No, it's not okay. It is not okay to do those things. And so last time, it caused a bit of a hit. And so Paul says, I, I long for you to repent. 
But if not, chapter 13, we're into now, 1 to 4, he was prepared to rebuke them. Verse 1, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I'll not repeat it while absent. On my return, I'll not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Oh, look, it's time to get serious, he says. Look, legally, we'll handle things as it was done in the Old Testament. Two, three witnesses. Verse 2, this time I am going to have to be forceful with you. I'm afraid I don't want that. But Paul is insisting you require moral surgery. And as your doctor, I really want to persuade you of that. If not, do you know what? I'm going to get you up against the wall and sort of, you know, really. Uh, a friend of mine is a um, orthopedic consultant, knees and uh, hips. Uh, he's a, he runs a team, and uh, one of the other consultants in his team got into a little trouble the other day. Uh, he had a, a woman come to visit, a BMI of 160. It's the first time in the hospital's history they didn't have any scales that could weigh this woman. They had to send her to a vehicle weighing centre in order to have her weighed. Just vast. Uh, and uh, you said to the woman, well, I can operate on your knees, but the truth is the problems will come back. No, I'm fine, doctor. Just do the op and I'll be fine. No, you are not. And said to her husband, can you persuade her? No, she's fine. And to which the doctor, who was also quite a big bloke, sort of 6'4", and a, a relevant uh, weight appropriate to that, said, well, just one moment. Would you mind, uh, Mr. Husband, just stand there? And he jumped on the husband's back. He said, give me a piggyback. Now, out we go. And up you go up those stairs. And the bloke's sort of stumbling up these stairs. This is quite hard work, isn't it, when you've got this amount of weight on your back? That is what your wife is doing every day. But that is a problem, and the doctor is being told not to treat his patients in that sort of way. <laughs> but you get a sense of the, man's ex- the, the doctor's exasperation. What are you talking about? Can you please see that there is an issue here that you need to address your health? And Paul is saying, can you see? Oh, look, I will resort to forcefully coming among you if that's what's needed. I don't want to do that. But I'm just so fed up with, you know, you've got to get this right. I don't like doing it this way. Verses 3 and 4. Okay, but since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he's not weak in dealing with you, he's powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we're weak in him, yet by God's power we'll live with him to serve you. These are are tricky verses, but Paul seems to be saying, okay, you you want me to demonstrate that I'm strong. You want me to prove that Christ speaks through me. Because you say I'm weak and these others who sort of stand up and rant and shout, they're, they're, they're the powerful ones. But can I just remind you that Christ's power is seen in weakness? I don't have to shout the word of God at you for it to be powerful amongst you. I think that's what he's saying here. Far better than me coming to rebuke you is to ex- for you to examine yourselves. I don't want this situation where I ride into town and say, right, let's sort it out once and for all. I don't want that. Why don't you sort yourselves out before I get there? And so, verses 5 to 10, he called them to prove themselves. Verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you'll discover that we have not failed the test. 
Paul says, Look, do, do test yourselves. That is, are you going to listen to my warnings on your sexual behavior or not? That's the test for them. I think you will. I think you'll test yourselves. I think you'll repent. I think you'll, you'll see that Jesus is working amongst you. I'm expecting your repentance, he says. I think that'll go okay. And so, verse 7, now we pray to God that you'll not do anything wrong. Not that the people will see that we've stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I, I don't mind. If I come amongst you, and rather than being forceful and dramatic and powerful amongst you, if I come amongst you and I'm just myself and just sort of weak, because you've repented, you've, you, I don't need to come and rant and rage, rage at you. I'll be delighted with that. I'm not interested in my reputation. I don't care if I'm known as a feeble Paul, as long as you're doing the right thing. I don't mind if I'm viewed as weak, as long as you're strong in the faith. That's all that matters to me. I'm not interested in my reputation, just your spiritual health. And so I pray for you. Verse 9, we're glad whenever we're weak, but you're strong. If I appear weak and you're going great, that's fine. Our prayer is for your perfection. Same word is in verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. I dislike doing this intensely, but that is a terrible translation. There's a very good word in Greek for perfection that gets used throughout the New Testament. This, is a, <laughs> this word, for it's worth katarizo, it means to restore or to mend. My prayer is for your restoration. Aim for restoration. When Jesus first meets the disciples, the fishermen, and uh, they're, you know, they're, they're sat on the shore and they're repairing their nets, it's this word, kataritsu, to restore their nets. Because nets, which have got graping, uh, um, uh, gaping great holes in them, they're not so good for catching fish. They need to be restored so that they're useful again. Paul says, I'm praying for your restoration. What it's worth, Ephesians 4, the role of the pastor teacher is to prepare, equip, restore God's people for works of service. This word. Paul is saying, I want you to be restored so you're useful. I don't want you to be nets with whopping great holes in them that are useless. It's for your sake I'm praying this. That's them. For you and for me. What do you do with verse 5? It's an interesting verse, isn't it? It's literally yourselves examine to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do a bit of quality control check. You've got to know yourself here. Some have, um, some have a very tender conscience and this, the moment they begin to examine their Christian lives, just say, I'm terrible, I get it all wrong, how can God love me, am I really a Christian? Other people have you know, metallic consciences that can just never be dented by nuclear rockets. And no matter what they're doing, they think that they're fine. And God must love them despite the three murders they've done that day. Of course God loves me. So you've got to know you're, what you're like temperamentally. Let someone tell you if you're tender-conscienced or you have a, the skin of a rhino. You've got to know those uh, sort of things. But, Paul says, examine yourself. 
How are you doing in response to my teaching, says Paul? What do you make? What, how do you do that? Well, you could use a medical metaphor again to test yourself. Uh, medically, uh, the older you get, the more tests you're meant to perform on your, upon your body on a regular basis, aren't you? You're meant to you know, you know, test this and blood pressure this and you know, uh, get measure this, etc., etc. What do you do spiritually? It reminded me of something an older minister did. Uh, he's a retired minister now, but did a few years ago. A chap called Wallace Ben, who was a minister of uh, a church where my mum goes, actually, uh, the uh, London uh, outskirts. And uh, uh, he's 20 odd years ago now. He decided he'd do, try a little experiment at church. He's a reasonable size, you know, 500 odd in the congregation. And uh, he said, okay, he sent them all a questionnaire, about 30 odd questions. And uh, he introduced it like something like this. I'll, I'll get it slightly wrong, but it was the gist of it was this: uh, I am your pastor, responsible for your spiritual health, in the same way your GP is responsible for your physical health. Not many of us make an appointment to see our GP unless we've identified that there's something wrong. But in the spiritual realm, sometimes it's harder to spot that there's something wrong. So here is a questionnaire that I offer to you. It's voluntary. No one is obliged to do it. Just like you're not obliged to go and visit your GP. But here are 30-odd questions. Let me encourage you to find a quiet hour to work your way through them. And then, well, if you want, make an appointment and chat through the results with me, particularly if you're alarmed by anything. And the question there, there was all sorts of questions on devotional life. Have you got more, do you think you're getting more acquainted with God than you used to? Are you more engaged with him? Do you enjoy meeting with him on a Sunday? Do you meet with him midweek on your own, in your own devotional lives, devotional questions, intellectual questions? Do you have doubts? Are you growing in your Bible understanding? Uh, do you grasp the major doctrines of the Christian faith? Uh, are, are you battling? Are you battling temptation in various ways? How are you doing with money and with sex and power and these things? Are you growing? Are you becoming a more loving person, a more accepting person? You know, all these sort of questions. You see, to think about them, reflect upon them. Of course, in one sense, every time we open the Bible, God addresses you and you're examined. How do I feel about these words? Or do, I, do I respond to them or do I uh, reject them every time? But there's something here that Paul is saying. There's points where there needs a certain, a certain depth of self-examination. Some point in the year. How am I going? Am I listening to the authority of Paul, of the, of the Bible? Do I, do I share his ambitions, which are to, to be restored, to be useful, to be active, to, to give myself for others? Good thing to do. Paul says sometimes you need to exert a little bit of quality control upon your Christian life. His ambition was for their building up. For their joy, you see it in these final greetings. Sorry, naff heading, but verses 11 to the end. Finally, brothers, goodbye. That's a terrible, I don't know what's going on here. Someone lost, someone ran out of uh, energy. Finally, brothers, rejoice is what it actually says, which is a bit more better than goodbye. Rejoice. Rejoice is what you're meant to do. 
Aim for restoration. Listen to my appeal. Be united, be of one mind, live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul says to this group, will you listen to my authority? Will you know my ambition for you? You repent, you're restored, you're wholehearted in your service. And what will you do? I don't know, he says. But verse 14, I just trust you to God. I trust you. And one very clear mark of God's grace in your life, that you've understood his goodness to you, is that you'll hear my word, says Paul, as a father to his children, as a doctor offering advice to someone who's sick. You'll hear them rightly and respond. It isn't utterly naff and twee for me to say, uh, I'm going away for three months. Will you please listen to the authority of the scriptures? Will you please Take seriously Paul's authority, not your own. Will you have his ambitions to see others restored, repentant, growing? And have that for your own life. And therefore, if you've got those things going, you'll rejoice. Goodbye. No, no. Rejoice. <laughs> you'll rejoice if those things are going well in your life. Let me do this in prayer. Father, we pray we would hear these words rightly. We would accept the authority of Paul, the authority of your scriptures. We would repent where it's needed. We'd examine our lives and uh, again make uh, make amends where there needs to be so we're restored before you. We'd examine our lives and be encouraged where there is uh, signs of your grace at work in uh, growth, in godliness, in zeal for others. And will we, Father, entrust ourselves to you? We do pray, of course, that your grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit will be amongst us and demonstrated amongst us in living lives which bring glory to you. Amen.